If you're studying for the CISSP, CCSP, or CISM certification, you'll probably get a lot of benefit from the WANA Practice app at wanapractice.com. Hundreds of practice questions unavailable anywhere else, all in a simple interactive format, which you can access through any device with a browser. Check out the show notes for a discount code for half off the regular price. Wanna practice? Success and certification is in your hands. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Sensuous Sounds of InfoSec where we discuss all things information, all things security, and all things information security. I'm Ben Maliso. I'm Matt Snotty. I'm Joey Police. Gentlemen, this week I'm going to um, uh, refrain from any levity or any of the dad jokes that we usually throw in here. We've got a uh, very important subject to discuss, and I want to approach it with the seriousness that it deserves. Uh, also, um, I... I uh, I want to give a warning to some listeners out there. Some of the stories you may be hearing today do not end, and then they all lived happily ever after. Um, this is uh, serious, and um, it does have some gravity to it, so uh, just fair warning. You may want to go to next week's episode instead of this one, if that's something that's troublesome to you. I'm going to take the opportunity to introduce to you my uh, academy classmate from a million years ago, friend, colleague, all-around great guy, retired Air Force Colonel Tim Kirk. Tim, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you, gentlemen. You know, this is big. This is the first time I've ever seen Ben somber and serious and <laughs> reflective. You, your therapy has obviously brought you a long way. You know, and I was trying to give this a, a, a level of, you know, just just removing the jocular approach that we usually do. And you have to go ahead and bag on me right away. All right. Yeah, well, all right. I am like big into dad dad jokes so i don't oh, know good. how okay. else to speak you know it's it's going to come up all right <laughs> so tim um before i let you give a little bit of your background uh to our three listeners um i just want to go ahead and explain to you why it's so important for us to have you on the show we've done a few episodes uh recently about our industry uh information security has a lot to do with the it industry which is a high stress industry and we talked about burnout among our practitioners and we talked about the levels of stress that they experience and the growing suicide rate among us and before we really approach that topic with any kind of rationale i said we need to bring somebody in who knows more about this we deal in innuendo and rumor and and strict opinion we need some facts we need someone with insight tim can you tell us about your background and why you're uniquely suited to talk about this episode yeah thanks no i never thought that i would really have any uh, exposure to this i as you mentioned graduated from the air force academy became an aircraft maintenance guy and uh, spent a career doing that kind of stuff but after i spent three years in Afghanistan, a couple of years in Africa. Uh, I had the displeasure of seeing people that I served with who were just absolute superheroes and uh, a great credit to our nation, then turn around and come back and try to, you know, transition back into civilian life. And they just got destroyed and uh, trying to help them 
at, you know, on an individual basis. I was like going and standing on the desk at the VA and saying, this is my troop. You're not going to screw with them. You know, I'm not leaving until you take care of them. And they just didn't care. You know, the VA people didn't care. The other people didn't care. And I was like, if it's this bad with a former colonel standing on their desk, how bad is it for the E4 in Kentucky who, you know, knows nobody and has no help at all? Um, because the sad truth is, by the VA's own statistics, in the past 20 years, at least 120,000 veterans have killed themselves. Okay. That in 20, is in 20 years, 120,000. Yes. So since Natural 2001, 6,000 a year. Yes, at least. And I'll explain more about why I say at least, but compare that to our total losses in world war one at 116,000 or compare that to all our losses for all causes in all wars since world war two, Korea, Vietnam, Desert Storm, all the Middle East wars, that only comes to 101,000. Wow. So that's, all right, that's that's sobering. That is yeah. uh, 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 an awkward, stark indictment of how we're treating our veterans. Now, I got to ask you this, because this is mm -hmm. a topic I, before we segue over into the general topic of, you know, uh, suicide prevention among all parties, let's let's focus on the veteran population for a second. Right. Um, I've long wondered about causality versus correlation. Mm -hmm. I think I think the dime store psychology approach to this is what veterans go through causes trauma and therefore they are more likely to kill themselves. I've often wondered if being just a member of the armed forces increases that possibility because it's a self-selected group of people who are abnormal. They are different from the rest of the population. They go and choose the profession of arms. They see violence as a legitimate solution to problems. Is there an aspect to that from what you've learned that, that you know, people choosing to do this might be doing it because they're already predisposed to finding answers that way? Well, like you, I picked up this thing at the academy where I, you know, follow the science, right? So when you read the research from the past 50 years that academic institutions and the VA and the government have done, they have found that there is zero correlation with any aspect of humanity. Doesn't matter if you're a boy, girl, straight, gay, you know, sick in the head or not sick in the head, including mental health. And this is one of the big misnomers is that people automatically associate suicide as a mental health problem when the science so, so i'm sorry so when you say there's no core no correlation there's no correlation between veteran suicide and any other demographic right there's no way to take a person and say okay they have these three characteristics and so therefore they're at a, a more profound risk for suicide than anyone else now veterans commit suicide at a higher rate than their civilian counterparts but there's no single aspect of that that they've researched that have come up with, you know, a, a causality. In Not other words, facetious, but we're better with firearms. We are absolutely usually pointing the other direction, but yeah, better in general, uh, more comfortable in general. But that's not really even what we're seeing scientifically as well. So there is no one causal factor that science can tease out 
as to what causes uh, suicide. Now, your hypothesis on veterans and their exposures and, and the traumas and so forth, I think that's a valid hypothesis. There just isn't any research yet that uh, supports that as an emerging factor. And we see that because, as you point out, people join the military and get exposed to all kinds of trauma. But also think about what makes people join the military. Usually they come from broken homes, you know, tragic outcomes and stuff like that, especially on the enlisted side, as a means for escape, you know, to get out of a bad situation. And then it's out of the frying pan and into the fire. Uh, so there's all sorts of dynamics at play, but the best scientific minds have not been able to draw any kind of causality relationship between any one of those factors to date. Oh, wow. Okay, so that's even more terrifying, I got to say. I mean, not seeing it coming is the worst kind of monster. Uh, and I'm sorry, we skipped over it. Go ahead, Tim. Can you give us a little bit more of your background and how you got into this area and what you're doing now? Yeah, so when I tried to help my uh, battle brothers and sisters get their benefits and saw what a crazy dynamic it was really kind of the impossible odyssey that each of them were going on. I said, okay, what we need to do is set up kind of like what we had in the military. Remember in the military, we had like an orderly room where all the smart people and all the administrative stuff sat. And a unit dynamic was how good does the unit crack the code on the you know administrative queep so that when their troops have a problem with something, they can say, okay, come here, go talk to Jones. Jones knows all about this. He can hook you up. We just didn't have that for veterans. We had a lot of interested groups, a lot of groups that would help with things like disability claims and so forth, but no single point where no matter what problem you had, if you were a veteran, you could walk through the door and have a high degree of confidence that somebody in there had worked a problem like yours a dozen times, two dozen times. So we created the Warrior Healing Center and populated it with all veterans, all veteran family members, people who had been there, done that, and really focused on just answering questions, uh, finding resources. And if the resources don't exist, you improvise, adapt, and overcome and create the resources. And our fundamental theory was, you know, that the veterans don't need, uh, you know, a, a gold-plated solution to solve their problems. What they need is what we learned in the military. They need good leaders who listen to them, understand their problems, and find ways to help them. So I've been doing that now for five years. My wife and I uh, basically sold everything we owned and bought this building and started putting it together and so forth. And um, she's the director, I'm the chief clerk, and we just see veterans and their families. Because the place where we set it up in Sierra Vista, Arizona, is the number one city in Arizona for veteran population density, and it's the number three city in the country for veteran population density. So it's a, it's a good environment to put this to work. And um, last year we had 8,000 visitors. Uh, we had over 700 veterans come for the first time and request assistance. So it's it's been prolific, to say the least. I, I can't thank you enough for what you're doing. 
um, for the veteran population, for people in need, and for the country overall. It's something you've done your whole life. And uh, if there aren't enough people like you. Um, thank you for that. Um, what's your benchmark for success? And over the five years, have you felt successful? Yes and no, but yes, we have. Um, so one of the challenges of working in veteran suicide is there's no way to really say whether or not you've prevented a veteran suicide, right? You can't measure a negative, same insecurity. Exactly, right. So what we do is we focus on the crisis that leads to suicide. Uh, when a veteran's got a gun to his head, it's so far down the line, it's really too late to really do anything about it. You can still do something about it, but your chances of success are not as strong as when you start off uh, six months prior when the veteran experiences what I call the country music song. My dog died, my truck broke down, my wife left me, uh, lost my house, you know, all those tragedies that can befall people. And so we measure how many people come to us, number one, and then number two, how many people come to us in crisis, and then how do they fare? So, for example, again, last year we had 700 veterans for the first time come to us and ask for help. 61 of those self-identified as a threat to themselves or others. And so we look at, okay, how do they do? And I can tell you, knock on wood, as of today, all 61 of those are still alive, have not hurt themselves, have not hurt anyone else. And that to us is the benchmark. When they come to us, how do they fare? And we never close a case. When the veteran comes for assistance, we address that issue, but then we continue to follow up again and again and again because you know the culture of veterans. It's hard enough to get a veteran to ask for help. It's impossible to get them to ask for help a second time once you've helped them on a first thing. You know, they're trained to be the universal soldier. Take charge, move out, you know, handle it. Pack it or pack it. And um, so we try to create a culture that counters that inclination. Uh, what I do is I explain that 120,000 number. Also worthy of note, that 120,000 number really is only those veterans who left a note. So a veteran who dies of uh, a drug overdose or a vehicular accident or they fall off a bridge that all gets chucked up to accidental deaths. So the number is actually much higher. And so we explain that to our veterans and say, look, it is not that you're having a problem and you need support. You're under attack, okay? If you were in Afghanistan with me and you were in an outpost and you were under Taliban fire, would you pick up the radio and say, yeah, I don't wanna be a problem, you know? Uh, <laughs> oh, but I'm getting shot at over here, there's a bunch of guys with guns, if you have a chance, if you can spare it, could you send someone? No, you'd be like, send me every damn gun you got. I'm getting shot at, get me out of here, right? And all of us would respond with alacrity. So that is the mentality that we're taking here. You're under attack. You're not asking for help, you need fires. And so we're sending you fires and we're responding with the same alacrity as if you're getting shot at because you are. You're being shot at in the psychological realm. And that, Does that reframing help? Yes, big time. Because they have no problem asking for supporting fire. That they're trained to do. What they they understand that. Yes. 
if there's a problem, you bring overwhelming force to that problem to solve it. And you oh, don't wow. stop until the enemy guns are silent. You don't just wait for it to get better. You kill them all, and then you go yep. home. And that okay. is the, the reframing that we do. Uh, and, and it's supported by the numbers. Once again, we've lost more veterans to suicide than we lost troops in all of World War One. Yeah, man, it's time to start supporting each other with fire. All right, so th this leads me perfectly to to our underpinning here, which is, can we generalize this? Now, you're able to reframe it easily for veterans because you understand veterans, you understand the veteran mentality. For people, particularly in our industry, which is what we're trying to address, I like the attack uh, analogy because it kind of works too, because that's kind of what we do. We are defenders and we understand bringing re resources to bear. Are there other um approaches that you have found useful and successful to help people who are in that crisis to get them through it and to reframe and retrain their minds yes absolutely number one we have to reframe the perception of suicide as a mental health problem we reject that completely and the science does not support remember i said so, there's sorry. no I'm sorry, you say we the, the, the healing center, you reject it as your fundamental principle. It's not yes. a mental health problem. Right. Okay. Right. Okay. Now, that's not to say that it's not a psychological problem, but those are two different things. And the way I explain it is, you know, when someone has mental illness, they struggle to cope with reality. They can't perceive reality the right way. They can't cope with the reality that they're seeing. And that creates a lot of their problems. Veterans do not have a problem perceiving reality. Veterans are reality specialists. Their lifeblood is perceiving and responding to reality. It's the VA that can't perceive reality. They don't understand what their processes do to veterans. And so veterans are suffering from an acute sense of reality. And I think and that to, is- And to broaden, to broaden that even beyond the VA for civilians undergoing the same crises, would you say medical practitioners as a whole don't have the tools or equipment or the procedures for couching that as well? Yes, it's the procedures. So think of it this way. If you're driving down the highway and get in an accident and that accident causes you an arterial bleed, you're lying on the side of the highway with an arterial bleed, an ambulance pulls up and out jumps a physical therapist. And he says, don't <laughs> worry, we'll have you back to work in six months, right? Now you might bleed out by then, but we'll have you back to work in six months. You don't wanna see that. You wanna see an EMT jump out of that ambulance. Someone who's trained to stop the bleeding and move you to the higher level of care where the surgeon is. What is happening is because of the obsession with suicide being a mental health problem, when people show up and say, I'm depressed, I want to kill myself, I'm under a lot of stress, whatever, they send them to the psychiatrist. And usually, you know, 90 days down the road, right? The psychiatrist is not equipped to handle the psychological crisis that the individual is going under. When it's the country music song, my dog died, my truck broke down, all that. The person needs a truck fixed. They need a dog to lick their face. There's all sorts of immediate resources that will ameliorate their stress that a psychiatrist won't think of. A psychiatrist thinks of modality therapies and drugs. 
And honestly, it's funny where I found out about this. I was doing some research, took a class at Johns Hopkins University where they were talking about psychological first aid. And they talked about how in the early 90s, they started dispatching groups of psychiatrists and psychologists to places where a natural disaster had taken place, earthquake, typhoon, you know, whatever, tornado. And they would surge these psychiatrists and psychologists in in order to help the victims. But as they reviewed it over the next 10 years of doing it, they found out that they were doing more harm than good. That the psychiatrists and psychologists are the long-term practitioners who do medicine and therapy. And what these people need is a first aid specialist. They need some water. They need some toilet paper. They need, you know, hygiene products. They they don't need, uh, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy. That's right. something you can do after you treat the bleeding bronchial artery, right? Exactly. Exactly. That's beautiful. Okay. So cool. All right. So so first, reframe from mental health to psychological crises from immediate stressors. And I think we could put that into practice in our industry. Where hey. Remove the stress first. That's the number one thing. When you put your hand on a hot stove, take your fucking hand off, right? Right. right. Okay. Good. Exactly. And that's the thing is that it this corresponds with what I find is a broader problem in the United States with our medicine, where we understand physical medicine very well, but we don't understand psychological and mental health very well. So the concept of first aid, we've had that for 50 years in our military where it's like, okay, self-aid buddy care. You're wounded, you help yourself until your buddy can get to you, and then it just moves up on the line, including role one, role two, role three facilities and providers. But when you go into a psychological wound, there is no first aid. It's just send them straight to the surgeon. And it, and and it sounds almost like with your country music song, if your car insurance would have handled the immediate crisis of your truck breaking down you wouldn't need your medical insurance to send you to a shrink right away right. i mean that the two are different approaches right is there some, okay so what's the second thing so so reframing is the first what's the second thing you can offer reframing the expectations that americans place on themselves culturally whether it's monster drinks you know you know, our culture valorizes. I stayed up until three in the morning partying, and then I slept 45 minutes and drank 16 monsters, and now I'm back here at work drinking Red Bull. I'm good. It's like, no, you're not good. You're destroying yourself. That is a self-harming uh, behavior that the culture valorizes, and we've got that in several dimensions when it comes to suicide. And the, the big example that I use is you remember back in the 80s, the 70s before that, the DUIs were kind of like considered boys will be boys. You know, they're out there having fun. Who cares? Until a group called Mothers Against Drunk Driving started parking the wrecked cars from drunk driving accidents on the campus at the local school. And they said, this is not okay. This is not tolerable. We reject this. We will not accept it. And I think a certain shift needs to take place, too, in our attitude towards suicide. We oftentimes, as a culture, valorize the behaviors that lead to it, like I said, the getting no sleep and living off of Red Bull. But the other hand is how we view suicide as almost like 
you know, it's a, it's a valorous end. Um, we see it in the military where guys who die in combat and guys who die from suicide get medals and are honored on the same stage as if what happened to them were the same. And it's like, no, it's not the same. We have to shift the mind to, look, we have every resource any human being in crisis could ever want or ever need. The World War II veterans only dreamt of having, you know, resources that we have today. So it is no longer acceptable behavior for you to end your life early. That is chickening out within the face of all these resources and all these people who want to help. I'm, I'm a little skeptical of assigning shame or guilt to the practice of suicide. And, and, and the reason I say that is because that can add another layer of stress on top of everything sure. else. If, if that's the only escape hatch that someone sees for themselves, right or wrong, um, I, I think that removes some of the filial and familial support system you would have if you reach out for help. I, I think in the 50s, the 40s, the 30s, I think there was a lot more suicide and it was covered up because society did see it as a shameful thing. And you would give the family the out. The medical examiner would write a different uh, cause on the death certificate to avoid that stigmatization. Um, so I, I'm a, I understand what you're saying, I think. You're, you're saying, let's not glorify this end. Let's find a way to recouch it from the public's perception into something more. But I, I like what you particularly said about the work yourself to death thing. And I think we see that in our industry as well. There, there's almost a, a, a braggadocio about saying, you know, I stayed up for 48 hours. I was on call at the operation center all weekend long. And they're like bragging about this when instead you should say, hey, you know what? My employer owes me 10 days off following this event. Because what I need to do is I need to recharge and I need to come back at it healthy. Going at it half-mast is just not going to work, right? Right. Um, totally agree with you. And on the shame issue, I, I don't mean to suggest shame. It's just that we have to reframe the expectations for including what you're talking about now. Is that a good worker is one who gets in there and never stops. And so you drag him away from the keyboard out of the op center, right? That historically has been our view. You know, in aircraft maintenance, it was... That guy who was out there walking the flight line through snow and wind and hail, and he was there for five days straight. It's like, no, that's not healthy. And once you get into that practice, it messes with your mind. There's all sorts of things that mess with your mind that if you're not on guard against, you'll succumb to sometimes all the way to suicide. And that's what I mean is taking away suicide as a inevitable consequence and instead- As a legitimate out. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I'm so, with you. I'm with you there. Uh, and, and I'm sorry. I see Matt and Joey. You're nodding as well. Uh, is there something you wanted to ask or add here too? No, no. This is this is all fascinating. And and yeah, I'm I'm recaging a bunch of uh, uh, our industry, like you said, Ben, uh, and and the, um, the the work practices that we have normalized that have led to uh, mental health crises in in our industry and how it needs to be recaged so that it's uh, not normalized anymore to to give people a rest but give give them a break let them take mental health breaks and stuff like that. Yeah, I I, I would just echo what Matt said. I, I can't I can't begin to fathom you know the mental health challenges that that veterans have. Um, but I also know that that it, it's real throughout the entire spectrum of 
the human the human race. Um, and to Matt's point, once we start normalizing the criticality of mental health and it's okay to see a therapist and talk to somebody. It's okay to seek out help for this because it's been stigmatized for so long, but, but uh, it's, it's definitely, definitely, um, you know, I, I think now more than ever in our lives, we're seeing how important it is. Okay. And, and Tim, okay. So reframing um, the, the individual's approach to the crisis first, second, reframing the public's, uh, expectation of what individuals should do. Second, is there a third uh, yes. pillar or mm -hmm. fundamental? Reframing our institutional approach to psychological health. And again, distinct from mental health in the sense that we're not talking about mental illness, we're talking about conditions we create ourselves. The ultimate example is, you know, today's science is teaching us that gut health is directly linked to mental health, right? It's directly linked to psychological resilience. And what that means is the bacteria that live in our large intestine are necessary to digest our food in order to feed our brain the micronutrients that it needs, right? So this is amazing to me, and I just have to laugh. In the military, somewhere around 2002, 2003, when we started sending troops, to Afghanistan, and then 2003, 2004 to Iraq, we started giving them anti-malarials in the form of antibiotics. Which so kills I, the bacteria in the gut. Bingo. That I destroys got a, the microbiome. Yeah. Yep. I got a bottle of 365 doxycycline tablets to take with me over there. And it was, take these or else. If you come down with malaria, it's your ass, right? And some people did, some people didn't. But think about what that does chemically and biologically if a person does take those. For 365 days, they're methodically destroying their gut biome, and then they get home, and what do they start doing? Start drinking, you know? And that just further paves over the biome. And then they, get, they go to the doctor, and they get PTSD meds, or statins, or any number of drugs that are notoriously bad for gut health. And so year after year after year, they deploy, take these pills, come back, and we're just completely eradicating their large intestine. And Have then- Have there been longitudinal studies on the effects of changing the biome and then either outcomes of suicide or other psychological crises? There are, but in fact, there's even a VA research outfit that's dedicated to this question of gut biome. But what they do not recognize, and what I've been trying to insert into the conversation, is they treat a deployment as a deployment. So if you went to Vietnam, if you went to Subic Bay, if you went to Afghanistan, all the same. But see, prior to 2001, all the anti-malarials were mefloquins. They took quinolones or whatever else, why not? Well, yeah. Yeah. They weren't nuking the. Where the gin and tonic came from was the, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. the British Army in the India. Right. And those were actually helping the biome. They switched to lighter, cheaper, easier doxycycline. And look what happened. So they're not looking at the problem from that mode changed and look at the difference. Because if you compare the numbers <laughs> between 1965 and 1990, 
only 9,000 veterans committed suicide. That we know of, and again, with the numbers being rejiggered. But here's why I'm gonna here's why I'm gonna press that that's probably more accurate than not. Only three thousand of those were Vietnam veterans. Out of nine thousand, only three thousand were Vietnam veterans. And most importantly, of the two hundred and seventy guys that went through Hanoi Hilton, zero of them committed suicide. Hmm. So the most traumatic experience possible seven years i mean you remember the the stories from reisner and yeah yeah all those guys not one of them committed suicide so something changed between then and now and i think an institution focus has to be how might we be doing this to ourselves because it is no doubt to me whatsoever that the doxycycline has made it worse I'm not saying that it's the reason for all of it, but our institution is not geared towards, hey, we got an experimental approach. Let's just throw it at the troops and whatever. In all fairness to the VA and the medical profession, and, and this is hard, physical effects are mechanical. Those are easy to measure. Those are easy to see. Psychologically, we're weird because it's all software there's no real way to get into the source code there's no real way to see what the physical effect has as a psychological effect that's very hard to measure it's all subjective to the individual even surveying that is impossible because it's based on the faulty reporter the individual themselves sure um so so i can understand how difficult it is now i don't think they're legitimately looking at it the way you're looking at it and i think that does need to change and i hope your voice gets louder and heard further um Awesome. Is there a fourth pillar? Is there a fourth thing? No, I think that if there is kind of a fourth roll-up point, it is to shift the emphasis from how to save a life to how to meet needs, how to make people feel cared for. Because the overwhelming experience with the VA and the rest of this is they're still stuck on this principle of your feelings don't matter. Suck it up, Mm -hmm. buttercup, you know, drive on, all that stuff. And that's wrong. It is all about the feelings. Like you said, we are weird software-based freak shows. And when you treat us the right way, we're super beings. When you treat us the wrong way, we fall apart. And there's, I think, really, if you watch the movie, um, Thank You for Your Service. Have you ever seen that? I have not yet, no. It's on Netflix. It was like the number four most popular movie this weekend. Yeah, They, They detail how these guys go into the VA to get their service connection disability. And they run into a colonel that they knew before. And the colonel comes up close and says, what are you doing here? Well, I'm trying to get my service. That looks bad for the troops, man. That'll freak the troops out. You can't do this. Knock it off. Get out of here. And I'm like, that really happened? Well, it's based on a book that the four characters in the movie are portrayed as. So I haven't read the book, but I would not be surprised if that was. But what really doesn't surprise me is they go to the VA counter and are told, oh, you waited for two hours here? Well, you forgot to fill out form XYZ. We can't see you until form XYZ is done. You know what I'm saying? They just treat people like. Yeah, well, and it's a Byzantine process. There's always a bureaucracy. I've been a VA uh, recipient for 30 years now, or almost 30 years, and it's horrible. 
It is horrible. It's a bureaucracy. You can't get an appointment for X number of months. Only recently did they add community care where you can go to private providers to get an appointment sooner. And that's for anything across the board. And um, I'm fairly healthy, but I know there's people out there who are really in severe need of this. And uh, it was shown in, I want to say, the late 2000s that the VA was purposefully delaying giving veterans admission to the program in order for those veterans to die off, to make it look like there's less VA need, which is the most despicable and inhumane practice I can imagine. That is, it's reprehensible and why no one went to prison is beyond me. Um, Yes. Okay, so so let me ask you this, reframing it in in general overall for both civilian and, and veterans in need. One of the things that we've seen a propagation of in many states is red flag laws where uh, someone reports that a loved one is in danger of harming themselves. So what do you do? You send the police to their home and seize their guns. Yeah, great Which call. to me, it goes right to the feelings thing you're talking about. Okay. Instead of instead of someone coming to them and, and saying, I'm here to give you care. They're here to say, I'm removing your sense of agency. I'm invading your space and I'm using force against you. Now, I've never been in that position, but I would imagine in trying to aid me you've now alienated me more and you're harming my feelings more than making me feel like you're helping me out of crisis does that sound right yes the most corrosive words in the english language this is your for your protection right (laughs) yeah Yeah. it's like my bank blocks my payments and say it's for your protection so you don't get hacked i'm like i've never had a hacker hurt me but you my bank have hurt me routinely yeah, and, and you, you said a word, uh, too, that I think is critical. You talk about community, and that's where I think the emphasis is or should be in terms of reframing, that when we use stormtroopers from the Death Star to come render aid and assistance, it's generally received pretty badly. You know, people get shot. But when you have, you know, Jedi Knights show up to render assistance, you know, I say all this out of all due respect there for Darth Vader, the the community closest to the people in need are best equipped to render that that assistance because they're their neighbors they go to church with them they their kids are in school together that connection adds a level of resilience and reality that the feds will never be able to achieve Okay, they may be the best equipped, but they're the most ill-prepared. If my neighbor came to me and said, hey, you know, I've been drinking too much, I'm in danger of harming myself, I wouldn't know where to start. Yes, I'd want to take the gun out of their hand, but I I wouldn't know if that's the thing that sets them off. Does that cause them to harm somebody else? What, What is a step that if one of our colleagues calls us and says, I just can't handle it anymore and I'm going to end it, what should we do? And I don't want to follow the government specs on how to mm-hmm. do this. I don't want to follow the, the current best practice. What have you found that's effective? Well, we work together with our local police force so that when they encounter a veteran who's not breaking the law but is just in crisis and probably going to kill himself, we come to the scene and combat veterans replace the police so that the badges and the guns go away and the uh, Grunt-style shirts you know, and the 511 show up. And it de-escalates the problem right off the bat. And the police have cooperated with you on this. Yeah. And for a number of reasons, not the least of which is because they're so thinly resourced that they can easily kill an entire shift babysitting a veteran in crisis when 
real crimes are going on around town. So we offer the, you know, the alternate solution of let the cops get back to law enforcement and let us sit with the veteran. And if he has to go to the hospital, we'll take him to the hospital. That will probably require us to sit there with him eight to 10 hours. That's okay. When he's sitting there with fellow combat veterans, you know, the dynamic is completely different. They open up, they, they want to talk about their issues as opposed to the cops. They feel like, right, they're in trouble they, or they could get killed. And I think that community approach goes back to what we talked about, psychological first aid. We as a culture really embrace and understand first aid. We got first aid kits, we got first aid Red Cross training, we got you know all this stuff available to regular citizens, but nobody talks about psychological first aid. And this is one of the points that Johns Hopkins makes is you don't want trained people, trained healthcare providers delivering psychological first aid because they mess it up. What you want is regular neighbors, Joe's show uh, doing it with the training just enough, like the EMT, just enough to stop the bleeding and get them to the next higher level of care. And that is what our communities need for long-term resilience. So a lot of the times the cliche is just listen. Is that a prescription that you would adhere to if someone, a colleague calls and says, this is where I'm at, I'm at the end of my rope. Just listen. Is, is that, well, is that's that sufficient the first. for first aid? It's necessary, but not sufficient. Okay, so what we use is the Johns Hopkins model of PFA rapid. And the R in rapid is reflective listening. So it's not just listening as much as it is, okay, you've just told me X, and I want to repeat back to you what I heard to make sure that I understand what it is you're saying. I can't tell you how many times. It used to be called active listening. It's what we do in requirements definitions too. Yes. um, Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So the, um, I can't tell you how many times I've sat with a veteran in crisis and done this where I I just let them vent for like 20 minutes and then I go, okay, here's what I heard. I want to help you, but I want to make sure that I understand. And I repeat it back. And then they walk out of there going, this is the first time I've ever felt listened to, valued, anything. And I'm like, it's crazy. All we did was repeat back to you what you said, you know, it, but it, it's so meaningful to people that they know they're being heard. So it's a software reboot. Exactly. Uh, so that's yeah. the first step. And then the subsequent steps deal with delivering the resources. So assessment is another important uh, part. You have to be trained on how to assess so so forth. But rapid is the acronym that we use. Tim, I want can we have you back on the show? Unfortunately, we do have to end today. Uh, can we have you back on the show? I'd like to hear the rest of Rapid. I'd like to hear more words of encouragement. I'd like to give you a, a megaphone to, to state your message as far and wide as possible. Um, c- can you come back on at some point? It'll cost you extra. Um, I'm, I'm hoping for some. <laughs> I'll double. I'll double what I paid you for this episode. How's that? For you, Tim. Sweet. <laughs> um, what we're gonna love do. It. We're going to put links to the healing center in the show notes. Is there a place to donate? Is it right there on your website? It is. People can go to 22 to n 
22-T-O-E-N-D-2. Well, well, you go ahead. You give me that link, and I'll make sure it goes with the okay. show notes when the, when the podcast gets propagated. Also, I'm going to enclose the link to an NPR story about some of your experiences, one of your troops, too, that, that you had me listen to earlier. And I found it very moving and very powerful, so I'd like to include that as well. Uh, is there any final message that you want to get out in our last two minutes? It's important for us to face the reality. When we first started this, community leaders told us, do not talk about veteran suicide. We take care of our veterans here. We don't want anyone talking about suicide. And we said, yeah, fine, screw you, we're gonna do it. And we've had an impact. Um, when we started, the county was averaging 12 veteran suicides a year. That was down to nine last year. And so far this year, we've had two. Talking about it is important. And a lot of people are gonna tell you not to talk about it in whatever sector you're in. We need to talk about this. We need to have this conversation, just like Mothers Against Drunk Drivers had that conversation 40 years ago. Outstanding. Tim, I can't thank you enough. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you for doing what you do. Thank you for being who you are. Matt, Joey, any final thoughts? Nope, I'm good. Please join us again next week where I promise it will be happier subject material. Um, uh, but I felt this was incredibly worthwhile. And I, I, I Tim, I can't thank you enough. Um, thank you, brother. It's great to see you. Sir. Thanks, Tim. All right. Uh, join us again next week. I'm Ben Maliso. I'm Matt Snotty. And I'm Joey Police. We'll be back next week for another episode of The Sensuous Sounds of InfoSec. Hey there, listener. Matt here. If you like listening to Ben, Robin, Rofty, Joey, or myself, please consider supporting us at buymeacoffee.com slash securitized. Interested in training for CISSP, CCSP, CISM, SSCP, CCSK, boy, that's a lot of letters, or other InfoSec certifications, Go to Ben's website for all his training programs at wannabeacissp.com. That's spelled W-A-N-N-A-B-E-A-C-I-S-S-P.com. We are on Discord. Engage with us by searching for the channel wannabeacissp. Feedback or questions on what we discuss? Send a good old-fashioned email to ben at benmaliso.com. You may hear a shout-out or your feedback on a future show. We're all working professionals in the InfoSec industry, so feel free to link up with us on LinkedIn. Support Rofty's company and test drive their free firewall software called Portmaster, downloadable at their website, safing.io, spelled S-A-F-I-N-G dot I-O. Support Joey's company, Blue Edge Networks, at blueedgenetworks.com, and listen to Joey's podcast called Topic of Choice at topicofchoice.com. Join us on Reddit at slash r slash ssoi underscore fans. All opinions expressed in this podcast are personal and for entertainment purposes only. They do not necessarily reflect the opinions of our companies, affiliates, employers, guests, or even each other. No advice given here should be followed without consulting with a professional for any specific InfoSec situation you may experience.